Welcome to your High Vibration Life podcast with Robin Openshaw, also known online as the Green Smoothie Girl. When you're living your high vibration life, you're healthier in every way. You're more productive, creative, peaceful, and loving. Your high vibration life is calling. And now your host, Robin Openshaw. Hey everyone, it's Robin Openshaw and welcome back to Your High Vibration Life. And today is a really amazing interview. I'm really excited to introduce you to my friend Ari Witten. He is the number one best-selling author of the cutting edge book, Forever Fat Loss. He's a fat loss and nutrition expert. He's been running a nutrition counseling and personal training business for over a decade. He's a kinesiologist. He's a fitness, nutrition, and health specialist. He's got two advanced certifications from the National Academy of Sports Medicine, and he's finished his coursework. He's just about to get his PhD in clinical psychology. So just like me, you know, it's psychotherapy meets nutrition and wellness. We both have a combined approach of both uh, mental and physical health for overall optimal health. So Ari is such a great researcher. I've been really impressed with how deep he digs to find the truth at the bottom of all of these controversies in wellness. He's been really uh, researching deeply for 20 years about health, fitness, and nutrition. And he is going to talk to us today about number one, maximizing vitality and energy levels. And number two, a passion for him is helping people achieve permanent weight loss by unlike a lot of the weird ideologies and diets out there working with your biology rather than against it. So Ari Witten, thanks for coming on the show today. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Well, I was uh, really excited to read your book, Beyond Adrenal Fatigue, because you really tackled some trends out there you know, I have a friend who blames everything that's going on with her as well. I have adrenal fatigue. I have stage three adrenal fatigue. Can you tell us a little bit about the book and what's the real deal on adrenal fatigue? Yeah, well, so that's it's a it's a big question. And we, we could uh, probably talk the whole time about this. So stop me if I go too far too deep into it. Um, but basically, you know, there's this whole narrative around the adrenals and adrenal fatigue and and the common paradigm that's out there uh, when it comes to why we're fatigued, why we have energy issues is really this adrenal fatigue narrative, which is, you know, the basic idea is um, adrenal, the adrenals produce a stress hormone called cortisol. And when we have various kinds of stressors in our life, um, it creates a demand on that system, on that the adrenals to produce cortisol. And when the stress is chronic, it sort of wears the adrenals out and then they can't produce enough cortisol to keep up with the demands. And eventually they sort of wear out and get fatigued and then we get a, a cortisol deficit. And that uh, is, that's what results in the symptoms of fatigue, of sleep issues, of sugar cravings, of, and there's a number of other uh, fatigue uh, of symptoms that are kind of blamed on the adrenals getting worn out in this way. And this, there's kind of an interesting phenomenon right now um, going on in, in this regard because for one, if you go and talk to any conventional MD, um, vast majority of you know conventional MD physicians will basically tell you that adrenal fatigue is nonsense and that it doesn't exist and there's no research whatsoever to support it. 
And yet, if you go talk to anyone in the, you know, generally alternative or holistic health realms, um, basically everyone is very, very convinced that adrenal fatigue is an unquestionably real thing. And, um, you know, conventional doctors just don't have a clue because, you know, really they just don't understand things as, as deeply as the holistic health people do. Um, so there's almost this battle going on between these two camps of one saying, you know, they're absolutely convinced that adrenal fatigue is real and that conventional doctors are just, you know, idiots who, who just don't understand things. Um, and then the conventional doctors think all these holistic people uh, talking about adrenal fatigue are just um, snake oil salesmen, charlatans, just pseudoscientific quacks who, who just have no clue about science. So that's in itself is kind of a, a remarkable thing. Now, I, uh, I originally was operating very much in the adrenal fatigue paradigm. And I was, you know, thinking that everything was about adrenal fatigue. I mean, you can go online and find 5,000 different articles everywhere about adrenal fatigue. You can find books written on it. Um, everybody seems to be talking about it in the holistic realm. And there are thousands of people diagnosed with it every day. And there are all sorts of scientific looking charts and things like that, that, that people have created to illustrate the different phases of adrenal fatigue. Some say it's, you know, three phases or five phases or seven phases, depending on who you ask. Um, and because of all that, I was very convinced that the whole thing was, was very real and very established. And there was lots of good science to support it. So, I originally set out a couple years ago to write a book and I was going to call it the science-based guide to adrenal fatigue. And, and basically what I wanted to do was just compile all of the scientific literature, you know, every known piece of scientific evidence that we have around the causes and best treatments for adrenal fatigue. I just wanted an evidence-based guide to everything related to adrenal fatigue. And I, I was kind of, I was set to begin what I thought was going to be like a, you know, a, a four or six month process of digging into PubMed and exploring all these different studies and putting all the pieces together and, you know, crafting the book. And what I was, what I discovered to much to my shock was basically that there wasn't really anything there. Um, if you go on PubMed right now, you know, just to kind of illustrate this, to, to give you an idea of how significant this is. Um, if you go on pubmed.com, which is basically like Google for all things science, all, all basically all the scientific research in existence is on there. And if you type in the name of any condition, so whether it be cardiovascular disease or, or liver cancer or um, diabetes or, or Alzheimer's, what I mean, even obscure ones, like think of anything that you can think of, any possible condition. You go to PubMed, you type it in, and I guarantee you, you will find hundreds or thousands of studies that come up instantly on that subject. Now, if you go and do the same thing for adrenal fatigue, you will basically find nothing, literally almost nothing in existence on that subject. And that's what happened for me when I set about this, you know, process of, of writing this book. So I, I honestly didn't even really know what to do with that. Like, I didn't know how to make sense of that. Cause on the one hand, we have all these thousands of seemingly knowledgeable and, and scientific 
practitioners talking about adrenal fatigue and writing books and articles about it. And yet there's really no scientific evidence on the topic. So I kind of just let it go for, for a long time. And uh, it wasn't until recently that I kind of started to put the pieces together and form a new paradigm. But um, just recently, just last year, uh, there was a, a, a systematic literature review that was published called Adrenal Fatigue Does Not Exist. And, you know, so, so in, a, in a sense, it's actually worse than just a situation where there's no research in existence because they're actually the, the research that does exist is actually negative data, meaning it's data which has concluded that adrenal fatigue does not exist and there's no science to support it. So that is that kind of prompted me to write this book called Beyond Adrenal Fatigue. And in it, you know, the first part of it is exploring all the science around, you know, or lack of science around adrenal fatigue. And uh, the second part is is kind of presenting the new paradigm of, of what I think is a much more scientific way of explaining fatigue than adrenal fatigue. And, um, you know, just to go a little bit more de- in depth on the science, what I did eventually discover is that there are actually several bodies of related scientific evidence. So while there's nothing really on adrenal fatigue per se, I eventually figured out that there were a few different bodies of scientific evidence on kind of related conditions. So um, one of them is called burnout syndrome. One of them is called exhaustion disorder. And these are actually recognized and accepted legitimate medical conditions that are, you know, accepted by the the mainstream medical community in contrast to adrenal fatigue. And, uh, you know, I also found evidence around just chronic stress and cortisol levels. I found evidence uh, looking at HPA axis dysfunction and chronic stress or burnout. Uh, I found evidence around cortisol issues and chronic fatigue syndrome and so on. So there, there were about five or six different bodies of evidence that were related to this general kind of concept of adrenal fatigue, this idea that chronic stressors wear our our adrenals and then disrupt cortisol levels, and that leads to fatigue. And I spent literally about six months finding every single study in existence, literally, and that's not an exaggeration, every study in existence uh, related to chronic stress or burnout or fatigue and cortisol levels, anything that even could be remotely related to that. And what I found eventually at the at the end of it was that about 25% of those studies showed that fatigue or burnout was linked with high cortisol levels. Another 25% showed that it was linked with low cortisol levels. Wow. And about 50%, actually slightly over 50%, showed that there was no cortisol abnormalities whatsoever that were detectable between people with either chronic fatigue or burnout versus normal, healthy, non-fatigued people. No detectable abnormalities whatsoever. Wow, you know what, so, you know what this reminds me of, Ari, since you're about to be a, a psychologist here, is some of the most famous... Uh, evidence in psychotherapy, which will give you a hint as to why I'm no longer practicing as a psychotherapist is that a third get better in counseling, a third get worse. 
and a third stay the same, which is, <laughs> it's the exact same statistics for people who don't do therapy. A third get better, a third get worse, and a third stay the same. <laughs> anyway. Yeah. So, so yeah. So, I mean, if, if I've painted the picture for everybody listening in, in, in a good way, basically what you're left with right now is this huge kind of uncomfortableness around the fact that we have thousands or tens of thousands of health practitioners who are preaching these ideas around adrenal fatigue uh, and diagnosing people with this every day and, and writing books about it. Uh, and the actual scientific evidence doesn't support it. It just flat out does not support the concept of adrenal fatigue uh, and the vast majority of evidence. And, and again, there are actually other independent systematic literature reviews apart from the literature review that I've done um, that have concluded this exact thing, that cortisol is not a valid biomarker of fatigue or chronic stress or burnout or anything else. And, uh, and there is very little detectable relationship between cortisol abnormalities and fatigue. Um, so it's, it's just a weird situation where there's this, really this just grand canyon sized gap between the actual scientific evidence that we have on this subject and uh, what is the common belief among holistic or, or naturalistic or alternative health practitioners. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. I think that there's, uh, you're, you're really good to dig to the bottom of something and debunk things. I really feel like there are trending biomarkers and there are things that even in functional medicine, which is more like holistic medicine, if, if anyone listening to this isn't familiar with the really big functional medicine movement, which goes to root cause instead of just treating symptoms with drugs, et cetera, you know, like cholesterol, everybody's obsessed with cholesterol for decades. And now we're starting to completely deconstruct what cholesterol even means and what it's for. And not all the LDLs and the HDLs are good or bad, as they used to tell us. And, and they may have little to do with heart disease and a lot to do with just your heredity and what's normal for you. And yeah. so it's interesting to know that these adrenal biomarkers may have little to do with anything too. Yeah. They, you know, and, and actually I'm glad you brought up cholesterol because there is actually a case to be made that certain cortisol abnormalities are correlated with, for example, very extreme chronic fatigue states. So, um, and this is a bit of a, a digression, but if you look at chronic fatigue syndrome, there is some data showing that deep into chronic fatigue syndrome, once somebody's had it for a very long time, uh, then you can start to see something called HPA axis dysfunction start to show up. And HPA axis dysfunction is hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis dysfunction. So eventually deep into the condition, you start to see some uh, cortisol abnormalities emerge. Um, but the research is clear on that, that it's not detectable during the beginning stages or during the onset of fatigue. So it's something that happens secondary to the fatigue rather than what most people think and, you know, the common thinking in the holistic medical community, which is that it's the cause of the fatigue. Um, so you can get some aspect of, of correlation, but correlation doesn't equal causation. And, you know, the same is true with a, a lot of the cholesterol stuff and, um, and, and heart disease and so on. You know, that's why it's been so tricky to pin down a link there and, and to, you know, to show that statin drugs and cholesterol lowering drugs really do translate into effective lowering of mortality and so on. So 
Um, ba- you know, but basically without, you know, uh, going in deep into that digression, the basic overall idea here is the whole narrative around cortisol and the adrenals being the primary cause of fatigue and energy issues just doesn't really have any science to back it up. Interesting. And, and, you know, when I was reading your book and you were talking about the HPA access dysfunction, if that sounds really technical to anyone, you know, we'll for sure give you a chance at the end of the interview, Ari, to tell everybody where they can get your new book. But as I understand it, it's an interaction of the three glands, HP and A, adrenals being only one. So am I oversimplifying to say that it's really um, the integrated interaction of three glands and their very different functions, but they're linked that is really at the root of it more than just adrenals? Yes. Well, it's, it's, so it's definitely a a really good move in the right direction to shift away from, you know, just to focus on the adrenal glands to the HPA axis. Um, and, and that is definitely a move in the right direction. It's definitely a a move towards what the science actually says. Um, but even there, there's actually a number of systematic literature reviews there. There's a few dozen studies that have been done on the subject, for example, of, um, HPA axis dysfunction, and chronic fatigue syndrome or HPA axis dysfunction and burnout syndrome. And generally those reviews, and that's part of part of what I was speaking about earlier when I was talking about the overall body of evidence, uh, generally those systematic literature reviews, those studies uh, don't support the notion that HPA axis dysfunction is the cause of fatigue either. So, um, you know, there are certain well-known um, people in the, in the holistic and, and naturalistic um, health communities that are that have shifted away from the adrenal fatigue model as they've recognized rightfully that there's no science to support it. And they've shifted towards HPA axis dysfunction. Um, but I would still argue that HPA axis dysfunction is, is not, uh, there isn't good evidence to support that that is the primary dysfunction that leads to fatigue either. Okay, uh, and, so that's and the, that's not telling the story. And as I understand it, you're more, you're you're you feel like the re, the research shows us that the story is told in the mitochondria, and that's what you like to talk about, right? So super central yes. to fatigue. Yeah. So I I think that we need to move away from an adrenal centric model, and you know, like I said. We, Many people have already kind of done that. They've moved away from adrenal fatigue towards HPA axis dysfunction, which is a better move, but still not, I I still don't think really tells most of the story. Um, It's something that can emerge deep into fatigue, but I think you you can't really make a scientific case for that being uh, the primary cause of fatigue and energy issues. Now, what I think is actually a much more scientific and a much simpler and less convoluted uh, explanation for why we get energy problems is that the energy generators in our cells start to dysfunction and don't produce energy as well. So, you know, just to contrast these two paradigms, on the one hand, you have an explanation that the adrenal glands, which produce this hormone called cortisol, which is involved in things like blood sugar regulation and the response to stress and so on, um, that you know becomes altered in some way where you can get slightly higher or slightly lower levels of cortisol. And that translates into fatigue and sugar cravings and sleep problems and all, all sorts of issues like that. It's, it's kind of a convoluted 
explanation, if you think about it. I mean, it, we've all become kind of normalized to it, but it is kind of like a very roundabout, convoluted way of trying to explain the lack of energy issue. Um, on, the, on the other hand, what I'm telling you is we have energy generators in our cells and they're called mitochondria. And fatigue and energy problems are fundamentally the result of your mitochondria not producing energy as well. So, so it's a much simpler, much more direct, in a way, much more common sense explanation for fatigue. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so what we need to do to build more little power plants inside our cells and really have four times as many as much going on in our mitochondria is drink more coffee, right? <laughs> yeah, just basically the more stimulants you pump into the system, the better. So lots of caffeine, cocaine, uh, you know, whatever, whatever you can find. Um, yeah. So, so what's, the, what's the difference between energy? I mean, let's get really basic. You're a researcher, but let's go to where most people live. What's the difference between stimulants and energy? Well, stimulants can ramp up energy production um, and they can actually stimulate your mitochondria to produce more energy temporarily. Um, but if you do that in a way where you're stimulating your mitochondria, you're forcing them to produce more energy beyond what they would want to produce naturally in the absence of caffeine, there's a price to be paid for it afterward. So, so yes, you can artificially do things to stimulate energy production. I mean, um, Caffeine will do it. Cocaine will do it. Um, you can inject stress hormones like uh, epinephrine um, or adrenaline, you know, to, more commonly, and uh, and and that will absolutely increase your energy levels. Um, there are lots of things like that that you can do to artificially give yourself a boost temporarily, but uh, ultimately, it's it's going to be bad news in the long run for you, and it's going to be very counterproductive. Yeah, I learned quite a bit from your um, your free video masterclass. I took Ari's energy blueprint free masterclass and you can go find it. We'll mention this at the end as well, but the energy blueprint.com slash Robin, R-O-B-Y-N, the energy blueprint.com slash Robin. I went through it and, and Ari talked about coffee and I was super interested in that because two thirds of America now drinks almost two cups average a day of coffee and everybody's addicted to Starbucks. I call it Starbucks because there's coffee and then there's Starbucks, right? Like Starbucks is GMO and it's full of all kinds of processed junk. And so, you know, I, I'm not going to lie. I drink coffee most days of the week, but I drink organic and I put coconut milk in it and a little bit of organic stevia. So I want, I want you to, it, this is kind of borrowing a little bit from Ari's really cool masterclass, but, and he, he addresses this. I love that you're living in reality, Ari, and you didn't, pound on everybody and say, you could never drink coffee again. What's your, give me, mm -hmm. give me a quick coffee tip. I just said that I drink organic and I don't put any dairy or processed sugar in it. Um, so there's no, it shouldn't be an effect on the blood sugar. What's, what's your best tip for, if you're going to drink coffee, then fill in yeah, the blanks. So, well, you know, let me, let me backstep just a bit because the way that I spoke about things a second ago could probably cause people to think that I'm really anti-coffee. And that's actually not the case. So if you look at the overall body of evidence on coffee consumption, it's actually associated with health benefits. And, and there are various studies that have shown that it decreases rates of, for example, cardiovascular disease or diabetes or um, many different conditions, various kinds of cancer and so on. Um, so overall, there's a strong scientific case to be made that coffee is beneficial to health. Now, that's one aspect of the science. 
there's also another aspect of the science where we can look at look at the short-term effects of coffee consumption on things like energy levels and mood and physical performance or cognitive performance. And that's another that's like another little bubble of of, you know, uh, one particular context that we can look at the effects of caffeine on human physiology. So one is long-term health effects, one is short-term mood energy performance effects. And then there's another context which is kind of long-term mood and energy and performance effects. And this is where it starts to get really interesting because the way that coffee or, or caffeine actually works in the brain to create the effects that it does is that it binds to a receptor in the brain called adenosine receptors. And adenosine is a specific type of neurotransmitter in the brain that's what's called an inhibitory neurotransmitter, which means it relaxes you, you it makes you sleepy, basically. So the way that, so if you, if you think of just adenosine for a moment, basically when adenosine goes in and binds to the adenosine receptor, it triggers a cascade of, of reactions that basically make you tired, low energy, sleepy. Now, the way that caffeine works is it goes into the brain and it binds to that same exact adenosine receptor. But instead of triggering all the same cascade that adenosine normally would, that would make you sleepy, it actually just blocks adenosine from having those effects. So by blocking the thing that would normally make you sleepy and low energy, it creates a stimulant energizing effect. So the end result of that um, in the short term is that it actually does lead to enhancements of energy and mood and physical and cognitive performance in the short term. And the research is very clear about that, um, that there absolutely are benefits from that. Now, here's the problem. The problem is that when you do this chronically on a daily basis, uh, frequently, especially multiple times a day, your brain basically gets the message that it's being overstimulated. See, because the brain always likes to be in balance. It has a, a mix of inhibitory and stimulatory, excitatory neurotransmitters. And it's always trying to keep them in balance to keep you in the right level of stimulation or tiredness, you know, the right amount of being awake or not awake. And that balance, I mean, it has many, many neurotransmitters that are involved in, the, in keeping this precise balance. So what caffeine is doing is it's going into the brain and temporarily disrupting that balance that the brain wants to keep. And it's creating that stimulant effect. But the brain, when you do this frequently, the brain goes, oh, I'm out of balance. You're overstimulating me. I need to do something about this. So what it does, it turns out, is it does a couple things. It creates more adenosine receptors and it starts to create more adenosine in the, in the brain itself. So what it's doing is it's responding to your overstimulation by creating more inhibitory signaling, more relaxing, fatiguing, sleepy signaling. So it turns out that even though coffee boosts performance and energy and mood in the short term, in the long run, it actually lowers your baseline levels of mood, energy, and performance. And now your, your normal state, when you're not on caffeine, actually becomes lower energy, poorer mood, and poorer performance than you used to have normally. And now, believe it or not, you actually require caffeine just to get a boost back up to what used to be your normal level of mood, energy, and performance. So 
most people, so this is the tricky part is, you know, even chronic caffeine consumers can, can detect a boost that they're getting. The problem is, and this is kind of insidious, is that they don't realize that the boost they're getting isn't an actual boost. It's just boosting them back up to what used to be their normal level of function, not giving them a boost to, to supra normal levels of function. Does that make sense? Yeah. So good argument to go off of it and to have it once in a while. I believe your recommendation was have it once in a while. Exactly. Yeah. So basically, if you balance out all these kind of bodies of evidence that I just told you, um, you know, with the fact that, you know, for example, there are long term health benefits to consuming this beverage, it's clearly a healthy beverage. Basically, my overall recommendation is to use it wisely when you actually need it rather than to use it every day, multiple times a day. So if you need a little extra boost sometimes, by all means, use it. That's how I use it. Um, But I definitely don't recommend using it every single day. Yeah. And that's the problem is people, people really rely on it for a ritual and they want it when they wake up in the morning and they associate it with going and sitting outside on the porch in the morning or whatever, whatever their thing is, or reading the, reading the news. So yeah. And you can do that and it tastes nice and it's a nice ritual. Just realize there's, there's a price to be paid for it when it comes to your energy and your mood and your performance. Yeah. Yeah. And this is a little bit sideways of the topic, but just quick, quick little plug here. Remember that coffee is one of the most sprayed crops Mm. in the world. And so if you're going to drink coffee, please don't buy Starbucks, please make your own and get organic. So, okay. Nice. (laughs) Um, I know you like to talk about the two different ways that we can build health. And I would love for you to share that with our audience. Why are, what two different ways and what are they and why are they different? Yeah. So, you know, basically when it comes to, you know, so actually it might, it might help if we get a little deeper into the, the kind of mitochondrial paradigm of, of understanding of health and energy. So one thing that the research has now made clear is that the mitochondria are, so they're energy generators. Most people know that they're energy generators, but there's actually kind of a little secret uh, when it comes to mitochondria. And that the, it's that the mitochondria are not just energy generators. They're actually involved in cellular defense. And they are exquisitely sensitive to what's going on in their environment. And basically what's, what happens is that in response to various kinds of threats in the environment, mitochondria will actually decide whether to go more into energy mode, energy production mode, or whether to go into defense mode. And they're actually part of the innate immune system, and they're, they're actually integrally involved in defending against threats to, for example, toxins or to microorganism invaders uh, and, and basically every type of stressor, uh, psychological, physical, microbial, toxic, a, a chemical, you know, any type of stressors. The mitochondria are designed to sense them. And when they detect those dangers in the environment, they shift into defense mode and shut down a lot of their energy producing capacities. So that's that's basically the the kind of the big overarching paradigm. This is how people get fatigued. It's your energy levels are basically a reflection of whether your mitochondria are predominantly in energy mode or defense mode. And that's predominantly determined by what kind of environmental signals they're getting about how toxic your environment and your lifestyle are. Um, So now uh, two phases of healing. 
you know, what I would say is what most people are, most, you know, health practitioners are concerned with is kind of eliminating problems, eliminating symptoms, eliminating stressors, eliminating, you know, various things. And that's, that's all really important. You know, things like correcting nutrient deficiencies, things like getting rid of toxins out of the body, things like, um, you know, lowering your stress levels, uh, drinking more water, you know, eating better food, all of those are extremely, extremely important. But once, you know, one phase here is kind of correcting problems. And the next phase is going from a state of normal or kind of like where you've you've gotten rid of the problems to making yourself better, okay? And basically what, what I'm saying to you is that we live in a world that is breaking our bodies down and breaking our mitochondria down. It's aging us. It's causing physical damage inside of ourselves. So the removal of problematic stuff from our lifestyle isn't enough. We have to go one step further than that and actually actively start to build and regenerate our cells and make our bodies more resilient to the stressors that are all around us at any given time. And, you know, to, to, I guess, uh, to delve into that a bit deeper, there's a concept called hormesis. And hormesis basically means a transient metabolic stressor. And we all associate with this, this word stressor with something that's bad. You know, we all have a very negative stigma around this word stress. But what I'm gonna suggest to you is that there are actually many, many good types of stressors, things that are extremely beneficial and actually vital for our health. And in my mind, this is a big missing key uh, that most medical practitioners, most, most health, health practitioners are not really addressing. One phase is to get rid of bad stuff, you know, stress, um, you know, problematic things in the, in the food supply, the water supply, uh, you know, sleeping better and so on. That's all great. But we live in a world that is toxic. There are toxins all around us. So the next phase that we all have to be concerned with is how can we make our bodies more resilient in the face of these stressors? And the way to do that is by using small doses of transient metabolic stressors that actually stimulate your body to adapt and become stronger and more resilient in the face of stress. Now, if that sounds like an abstract idea, um, everybody already actually knows one type, one way of doing this, which is exercise. Exercise actually works on this principle of being a, a transient metabolic stressor. So we've all heard the notion of what doesn't kill you makes you stronger, right? That is the concept of hormesis. It's basically you're intentionally exposing your body to something that is transiently stressful. It stresses your body out temporarily. And by doing that in the right ways, you stimulate your body and your mitochondria to adapt and become more resilient. And it does that through a number of different mechanisms. One is that the mitochondria actually physically grow bigger and stronger, so they're capable of producing more energy. They also will 
increase their internal antioxidant defense system so that they're better able to defend against all kinds of stressors, whether they be toxins or, or infections or physical or psychological stress or anything like that. Um, and then they also increase their anti-inflammatory system and they also increase their detoxification systems so that you're basically stimulating all of these different adaptations in your body and specifically around the mitochondria that basically translate into your body becoming more resilient and uh, and basically stronger in the face of all stressors. So uh, just to, to recap that, basically what I'm saying is it's one thing to kind of you know, correct the sleep and the stress and the nutrition issues. It's another thing to actively make your body stronger and more resilient. And in the world we live in today, our mitochondria are being degenerated progressively and chronically over years of, you know, toxin, toxin exposure, for example. Um, they're atrophying, they're shrinking, they're shriveling up, they're becoming fragile. We're losing their capacity to uh, adapt in the face of stressors. We're losing their ability to neutralize free radicals or oxidants, uh, to neutralize inflammation, to detoxify. They're losing all of those capacities and to produce energy. So all of those are, are being degenerated over time. So just removing stressors is not enough. We have to actively rebuild and strengthen our mitochondria back to the way they used to be when we were young. And, you know, it's not just that removing our stressors isn't enough. Let's let's uh, bifurcate the stressors for a quick second. Uh, I don't know. Have you read Kelly McGonigal's book, The Upside of Stress, Ari? Uh, I haven't, but it seems like it would be right up my alley. Yeah, you should totally read it. I, um, I was trying to think if I have talked to you about this book. But, you know, she is talking about a subject that I've always felt really strongly about, especially since I've raised four kids and, you know, entitled millennials are the, you know, it's what everybody's talking about with this particular generation that I've just finished raising, well, almost finished raising four millennials. And, you know, what, what, now that we're on the tail end of seeing how those kids are turning out, there's a lot of talk about how they're never cold. They're never hot. They never had to work very hard. There was no war. There was just affluence everywhere. Even the lower middle class, uh, millennial kids have been sort of coddled and, and how, you know, if you don't stress a muscle, the muscle doesn't grow, uh, applies as a metaphor to all of life. And that we are our best selves only in resistance to a difficult challenge, which is stress. And so there's good stress and there's bad stress, like doing hard things or being up against a deadline or having to solve a problem that feels unsolvable. I mean, that's how you and I have gotten to be quality people if to the extent that we are, right, Ari? I mean, those are stressors, right? Absolutely. Yeah. And so, yeah, there's it's it's I'm glad you brought that up because there's an interesting kind of translation of these ideas, which I, I tend to talk about things on the very biological, biochemical reality of what's going on inside the body that's tangible and measurable. But you're absolutely right that the same ideas do translate into the realm of kind of the intangible. Um, you know, psychological and emotional realm. And I agree with you 100%. And I think, you know, if you if you translate, well, let me put it this way. So when it comes to these, this concept of hormesis and these different types of what are called hormetic stressors that build up our mitochondria to be stronger and more resilient in the face of stress, um, the absence 
of those stressors in our lives degenerates our mitochondria, causes them to atrophy. So uh, for example, if you've ever broken a bone and got a cast on, um, after you got that cast removed after six weeks or eight weeks, you notice that all the muscles have shrunk and, and they've atrophied so that they're no longer strong like they used to be. Well, that's what happens when something is not stimulated with stress. So the same thing is happening on a, on a more internal level where we can't see as well uh, with the mitochondria. They're atrophying, they're shriveling, they're becoming fragile, they're becoming weak. And it's not only causing us to have fatigue issues, uh, it's also predisposing to all kinds of different diseases and, and as well as higher rates of overall mortality. Now, what you're talking about is, and what I agree with you on, is that the same principle is applying kind of on this psychological realm. And in the sense that, you know, I really believe that if you took a child and sheltered them from all types of psychological pain and psychological stress, you know, maybe even in the, you know, trying to do it in a good way where you're trying to protect that person from anything that might be uncomfortable, you are actually crippling them. You are you're doing something that is setting them up for a lifetime of failure by by sheltering them from those stressors, because that is ultimately what makes them into a a resilient person that can handle the world we live in, which is not a perfect no stress world. We all we all have stuff on our plate. We all have obstacles. We all have things that need to be handled and solved and pushed through. And if you're if you grow up in a way that's sheltered from those things, uh, you will be fragilized from it and you will be crippled by it. So I agree 100 percent. Yeah, I think the kind of stress that gets talked about, but nobody ever talks about the difference. The kind of stress we need to get rid of are chronic uh, negative things in our lives, the things that are harming us psychologically, it's hurting our energies, you know, and, you know, yes. like a toxic yeah. relationship. Exactly. Yeah. So it, it brings up an interesting point because um, a lot of different things can potentially serve as hormetic stressors that actually make us stronger. But what, what becomes really important is the dose and the frequency. So, for example, let's take exercise. Um, if you, you know, exercise is something we generally associate with, with health, but it's actually a stressor. And all you need to do to, to discover that for yourself is go run a marathon two times a day, every day, seven days a week for the next, well, it probably won't take you very long to, to figure this out, but uh, within a few days, you'll find out that you feel pretty terrible and that your body is beat up like hell and that you're fatigued and that you're inflamed and you're in pain and everything feels really, really bad. Now, all stressors are like that. Psychological stressors, toxins in the environment, everything is like that. When the dose is too big and too frequent, that's when it becomes a problem. But if you do it in the right dose, it's it can actually be something that is, is quite beneficial. For example, even, um, even toxins, uh, of various kinds which are can are extremely harmful and can kill you when taken in the wrong dose and frequency can can actually be quite helpful to your to your health you know for example there's um, radioactive 
you know, uh, uh, radioactive things can actually serve as something that that stimulates beneficial adaptations in your body. Now, I certainly don't recommend that anyone tries that on their own because it's really easy to get the dose wrong and kill yourself. Um, but all sorts of different things that are potentially very harmful can actually be beneficial in very small, brief doses. But when you talk about harmful stressors, it's really the chronicness, if that's even a word, um, the, for, some, for a stressor to be chronic and in a high dose all the time, then it becomes something that's toxic. And you know where we have that going on for, for a lot of us is chronic psychological and emotional stress. And we have chronic exposure to all sorts of toxins in the air we breathe, the food we drink, uh, the food we eat and the water we drink, you know, all of these things are chronically exposing us to low levels of various kinds of toxins. And that stuff, that is absolutely the wrong kind of stressor. So we, we have two things going on. We have too much of this bad chronic types of stressors that I just mentioned. And then we also have a deficiency in the good types of stressors that would be making our, our bodies and our mitochondria more resilient and bigger and stronger so that they can produce more energy. Yeah, really good point. So we have way too much job jobs that we hate, uh, relationships that are sucking the life out of us, um, lack of purpose, um, those kinds of chronic stressors. And then we don't have the good ones where we go out and we lift weights or we do exactly. yoga or we go for a 20 minute run. <laughs> Yeah. And on that point, I should also mention that, you know, exercise is not the only kind of hormetic stressor. It turns out there's actually over a dozen different types. So uh, just to name a few here, um, hypoxia, which is uh, low oxygen levels, and that can either be done. Uh, it can be done in a few different ways. One would be like going to altitude. One would be holding your breath um, underwater, for example, or just holding your breath above water. Um or even in certain types of exercise, ways of doing exercise can stimulate hypoxia. Um, and then certain kinds of light. So for example, UV light uh, and red and near infrared light, these are forms of hormetic stress. Um, intermittent fasting is a form of hormetic stressor. Uh, occasional glycogen depletion, which is depleting the carbohydrate stores in your body can be a type of hormetic stressor. Um, so there's, there's lots of different layers to this. Uh, Cold exposure and heat exposure are big hormetic stressors. So both being uncomfortably hot and being uncomfortably cold mimics a lot of the same uh, molecular pathways that exercise does. Um, phytonutrients is a form, another form of hormesis called xenohormesis. And uh, this many different kinds of phytonutrients actually stimulate a lot of these same molecular pathways that are part of hormesis. And that's actually what most research is leading to now is, is that most of the benefits of phytonutrients are actually not because they're antioxidants, but because in some cases, believe it or not, many of these compounds are actually pro-oxidants that are working in very much the same way that exercise is. So exercise is a pro-oxidant that is working to, by being a, t a temporary, a transient pro-oxidant, it's actually stimulating your internal antioxidant defense system to grow stronger and more resilient. So it turns out that a lot of the most beneficial phytonutrients that many people think are antioxidants are actually not antioxidants. So for example, sulforaphane in cruciferous vegetables, not an antioxidant, it's actually a pro-oxidant. And a lot of the other ones that are commonly thought of as antioxidants, it turns out are, are actually functioning in that same way. They're actually, they're pro-oxidants 
that's that work to stimulate your body's internal production of antioxidants. So interesting. There are a lot of scientific terms that Ari talks about in his writing and in his videos, since I'm really familiar with them. One thing I love about this video masterclass that Ari's offering uh, our followers for free is that he talks about these scientific terms. He's talked about hormesis and cortisol and transient metabolic stressors and antioxidants versus prooxidants and HPA access dysfunction. He's, he's talking about these scientific principles and you, you almost don't feel like he is when you follow his videos because he brings it down to earth. He, he speaks our language if you're a lay person and you're not a scientific person. So I'm excited for you to go learn how to live with a lot of energy from, from the source, not just always stabbing a pitchfork in your butt with, uh, with, with stimulants. And you can, you can go check out his video masterclass at the energy slash Robin R O B Y N. So the energy slash Robin. I'm really excited for you to get more exposure to what Ari's teaching now, bring it all the way down to square zero here. Ari, tell us three actionable things to have sustainable energy every day. I mean, the number two thing that people complain to me about, number one is weight loss, right? Everybody wants to lose weight and they can't think about anything else until they lose the weight. But the second one is I don't have enough energy or I can't sleep, which is definitely a an energy problem all by itself. I can't sleep at night and I can't stay awake during the day. Tell us three things. If you just did three simple things that anyone could do to have more energy, what would they be? So one that I'd recommend is stop doing caffeine every day. So start cycling on and off. And if you need that coffee ritual every day, then use decaf. But don't use caffeine every single day. Um, and if you're on you know, the so-called energy drinks, which are mainly just a combination of sugar and caffeine, time to get off of that. Um, so start cycling on and off of caffeine-containing substances. Use them more only when you need them rather than all the time. So that's one. Uh, another one is start to optimize your circadian rhythm. And your circadian rhythm is your 24-hour biological clock in your brain that is dictating a lot of your or your hormonal and neurotransmitter uh, responses throughout the day and night that basically it, it controls a lot of your waking and sleeping behavior. Now, this is kind of an abstract concept for many people, you know, this idea of this, bio, what is this 24-hour biological clock in my brain and neurotransmitters and hormones? What the hell does that even mean? Well, let me kind of ground this in a simple everyday experience. The reason that you get tired at night and fall asleep and the reason that you wake up automatically every morning is because of this circadian clock in your brain. So the fact that you wake up and that you go to sleep, those are hormonal and neurotransmitter changes that are happening in response to this, the, the signals that this circadian clock is getting. So start to optimize your circadian rhythm. A couple things that I strongly recommend that you do is block blue light in the evenings for at least one to two hours before bed. Uh, so, and you can do that by using blue blockers. There's a technology for computers called F-Lux, F.Lux, um, and then change the lighting in your house to be more red and orange dominant uh, so that you get rid of a lot of these blue emitting fluorescents and LEDs. 
Um, so that's another one. Also for optimizing your circadian rhythm, I mean, this, there's actually dozens of strategies for this, but one other one that I'll recommend for that is uh, to be consistent with your sleep and wake times. So to, to, to have a very consistent time that you go to sleep, that you wind down each night, that you actually go to sleep, and to have a consistent time that you wake up each morning. So this is actually a huge problem for a lot of people that they're uh, doing, they're, they're going to sleep and waking up at different times all the time. And basically that's a way of chronically disrupting your 24 hour biological clock in your brain, your circadian rhythm, and causing a chronic state of low level jet lag. So it's, it's basically the equivalent of traveling to a different time zone, a slightly different time zone. Uh, every day. So you get chronic low level jet lag, uh, it slows down your metabolism, it decreases your energy levels, it makes you less awake and alert, puts you in a poor mood, lots and lots of different effects there. Uh, and the last one is start exploring hormesis. Start actively challenging yourself with different kinds of metabolic stressors that work to stimulate your mitochondria. Health is not something that you find in a bubble. It's not something that you you can you you can't get healthy sitting in your house all day, um, doing nothing except putting supplements into your body and eating the most impeccable diet in the world. You're not going to get healthy in that vacuum of your house. You have to get out. You have to move your body. You have to breathe. You have to challenge yourself. You have to get sun exposure. You have to be cold sometimes. You have to be hot sometimes. Help reconnect with the forces of nature because the forces of nature is where hormesis is. And that, it, it, you know, basically when you get deeper into that, you understand that your connection with nature is, is actually vital for all of the systems in your body to work well, and including the mitochondria, which are your energy generators. So those would be my three. What a great uh, summary and great, really practical tips. And they really reinforce what a lot of other experts have said on this show about how to tap into the higher vibrations of the universe. I mean, we, we all want to live at those peak frequencies or else we wouldn't all be here together on the high vibration show. So I hope you've learned a lot about sustainable energy. You've heard a lot of things here. I bet you did not know about energy. And I want to say thank you so much to my good friend, Ari Witten. I hope you go learn more from him. And thank you so much, Ari. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me, Robin. 